0: the first thing that I will tell you that I learned was that love and belonging are irreducible needs of men, women, and children. In the absence of love and belonging, there is always
1: suffering, period. That's Brene Brown, and this is The Depression Detox Show. Welcome back to The Depression Detox Show, where we share ideas and stories to help you live a happy life. I'm your host, Malik Josephs. Happy Wednesday. So today we have one of my favorite speakers. She's a researcher, a professor, an author, and arguably one of the best storytellers of our modern era. Dr. Brene Brown is back on the show, and I just love... Anything that she comes out with, really. I mean, all of her talks have so many gems in them and it's hard to really try to pinpoint one or two little nuggets. Like the whole entire talk is always filled with so much. So in today's talk, she's going to be talking about a topic that's extremely important. I think it's it really needs no introduction. It's the topic of all topics and that topic is all about love. So without further ado, here's Brene Brown. Enjoy.
0: So for me, I did spend the first six years studying shame, fear, vulnerability, and empathy. At the end of those six years, I put a theory into the literature. I wrote a book on shame resilience. At the end of those six years, I had a very different question that I wanted to answer because along the way, I had interviewed, I'm a qualitative researcher, so I do long interviews, individuals, focus groups, sometimes larger groups with doctoral students who come and help. I had interviewed people who just like us wake up every day in the same culture of scarcity that we wake up in, but they live differently than us. These were people who, when I was in the process of interviewing them, they would say things to me like this, yeah, I mean, I read the magazines and I know what I'm supposed to look like and I know what my house is supposed to look like. But, you know, to be honest with you, I work really hard just to wake up every morning and say, I'm enough. I was like, well, how in the hell does that happen? <laughs> like, you know, what do you do? What's the secret? But I interviewed of a significant number, certainly not the majority of the people I'd interviewed, I would describe that way, but enough that I thought... Qualitative research is, I love it. Um, And you probably do it all the time without knowing that you're doing it. It's basically, I'm a story catcher. And I collect stories. Um, I always say that, you know, stories are data with a soul. I collect stories and I look for patterns and themes that emerge over and over in those stories. And one of the ways we evaluate our research is we look for saturation. And that means I interview 30 of you and a theme or a pattern keeps coming up and coming up. And it comes up with such regularity that I can predict it's going to keep happening. And it does keep happening. And so that's saturation. It was certainly, there were not enough of these folks to saturate, but there was enough to get started. So what I did is I grabbed a file folder and I wrote the name that came to mind for me. And that was wholehearted, I wanted to go back in the data and find the men and women who were living and loving with their whole hearts. Because they were there and I wanted to know what they were doing that was different than the rest of us. I wanted to know what they shared in common. And if you know my story, you will know that this does not turn out well (laughs) for a little while. Because I'll be honest with you, I thought the answer was going to be what the wholehearted share in common is a vast, expansive knowledge base around shame. The wholehearted are shame researchers. Um, And I honestly thought that. Um, I went into this research looking for confirmation that I was indeed wholehearted, just not aware of it yet. Yeah, the first thing that I will tell you that I learned was that love and belonging are irreducible needs of men, women, and children. I mean, I will go on the record as saying, in the absence of love and belonging, there is always suffering, period. This was a rocky start for me because up until this point, including the first book and the theory that I wrote on shame, I had never used the word love. Because it would be very difficult cell to tell my colleagues to use the word love in research. Because how do you measure love? And how do you talk about love? And so what we do in the, you know, in, as researchers is we just dismiss its importance. Because we can't define it or measure it. Which really makes no sense at all. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I was talking to 3,000 academics in my field in social work in San Antonio at a conference. And I said, how many of you talk about love. And these were all basically the academics that represent the entire faculty of social work nationally. How many of you talk about love? Two hands went up out of 3,000. And I said, let me ask you this. How many of you, the doors are closed behind us. How many of you today would be willing to walk outside of this room and never experience love again? No one raised their hand. I said, how many of you believe that love is the absolutely most important human experience. Everyone raised their hand. And I said, then why aren't we talking about it? You know, because we can't measure it. That's a terrible reason to not talk about something that we all know is universally important. So what I did in my work is I came up with the definition of love, which is at best ballsy, at worst, stupid. Um, (laughs) For this reason. We have to have a conversation about love. And I don't think we talk about it because there's no definition of it. We don't know what we're talking about. So I'm obs- I am a big part of grounded theory research is to cultivate definitions from the research. And so I'm gonna share a lot of definitions over the six sessions. But what I wanna tell you is that I'm just trying to provoke you. I'm not trying to sell you the definition. I'm just starting a conversation. Bell Hooks, who's one of my favorite writers, she's a feminist and a critic and English professor, she says that language is a place of struggle. And I don't think if we don't at least start to try to define something that we can't even discuss it because we don't even have a shared vocabulary to disagree. So here's how I would define love. And so what I did is I went into all of my research and put together what I thought love was based on the data. Love, we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known. And when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection. I saw no examples of love in the last 12 years that did not include trust, respect, kindness, and affection. Love is not something we give or get. It's something that we nurture and grow, a connection that can only be cultivated between two people when it exists within each one of them. We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. This was the absolute bad news. (laughs) And for sure, the most controversial part of my research. And then this would be the second most controversial on this definition. Shame, blame, Disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries if they are acknowledged, healed, and rare. So what struck me about this definition, I was actually kind of devastated by this whole process. Um, The whole idea that we can't love other people more than we love ourselves And the pushback I get on this all the time are from parents who say, that's not true. I love my child much more than I love myself. And I have to tell you, again, in a dozen years, I have seen no evidence of that really happening. Because especially as our children get older, I have a 13-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son, and... What I see now as she's in her teenage years is those things that I dislike about me the most are surfacing in her. And so when she comes home and says, no one sat with me today at lunch, I have to have a whole lot of self-love for that 13-year-old inside of me that also had nowhere to sit at lunch many, many times in order to respond to her without shame or blame. Does that make sense? Because what I see a lot in the research is I see children coming home and saying, no one sat with me at lunch. And mom turning to her and saying, I told you, wear a nicer outfit and pull your damn hair back. Right. And we do that. And so I don't think that we can love other people more than we love ourselves. Which is why, when I think it comes to our partners and our children and our family, our first order of business is the development of self love.
1: Big thanks to Brene Brown for stopping by. I got this clip from her Power of Vulnerability audiobook, which you can get on audible.com. And I've listened to some of it so far, and I can tell you that it's an absolute game changer for sure. You can also connect with her by visiting her website, Brown.com And check out her most recent book. Actually debuted a few months ago, I think in April. And it's entitled, You Are the Best Thing, Vulnerability, Shame, Resilience, and the Black Experience. And I'll have all the links to everything, as I do, in the show description. So you can go check that out. And before you go, when you get a chance, please follow the show wherever you get your favorite podcast. Or if you can be so very kind to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That would be amazing. And that is a wrap for me. I hope you have a great rest of your day and I will see you back here Friday. So until then, stay strong. Later.